Hey, Bible, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bible Y'all podcast for Saturday, January 6th. Happy Epiphany, which commemorates the visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus, or Christ's baptism, or his first miracle at Cana, or all three of them, depending on where you're from. But Bible Y'all Paul, you might say, none of them things was anywhere near the same day. But wait, I answer, there's more. Cause you ever see a nativity scene around Christmas time? with the three wise men crowding around the baby Jesus in the manger and probably singing that We Three Kings song to him? Well, turns out none of that happened. Chuck Messler has a real good deep dive on this, but let me see if I can bottom line it for you. The Magi were the priestly class in Persia. They weren't kings, but they did decide who the king was gonna be. So arguably even more important and powerful. These are the dudes that Daniel got put in charge of, which we'll get to but he was probably who clued him in on the Messiah in the first place. So when that weird star they'd been waiting on for 500 years finally showed up, they figured they best get after it. First thing they did was load up on three prophetically significant gifts for the new Lord. Gold, cause he's king of kings, frankincense, cause he's our high priest, and myrrh for embalming, cause he had to die for our sins. And cause it was three gifts, everybody thinks it was just three dudes. But remember, powerful kingmakers from a rival empire to Rome. Their custom would have been to send 12 priests, but when you factor in soldiers, staff, personal chefs, and concubines and such, 300 is probably closer to the truth. No wonder Herod was freaked out. I mean, wars have started for less. And by the time they put that whole group together and then walked 700 miles to Israel, Jesus was long out of that manger, which is why they had to visit him at home in Nazareth and why Herod had all the babies under two years old killed. But be patient, we'll get to all that. I mean, feel free to read ahead, but our reading for today is Genesis 13, 5 through 15, 21, Matthew 5, 27 through 48, Psalm 6, 1 through 10, and Proverbs 1, 29 through 33. So if y'all are ready, in the millennium, Jesus will also receive the gifts of gold and frankincense, but no myrrh, cause his death was once and for all. Amen. But before we get to the reading, let's me and the squad do a review of yesterday's study. Okay, so yesterday, on the 5th, in the Old Testament, we read Genesis 11, 1 through 13, 4. And that starts out with the Tower of Babel and the confusion of tongues. And the first verse is, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And the phrase whole earth implies to me that there was a lot of people. And chapter 10 lists a whole lot, so some time must have passed but I got no idea how much. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. So this is cool. I didn't bring this up in chapter 8, but remember in chapter 8, verse 4, it said, And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day upon the mountains of Ararat. Everybody likes to say it was on Mount Ararat, but the Bible doesn't say that. It says the mountains of Ararat. There is a Mount Ararat, and it's in Turkey. So a lot of people think that's where the ark is today. If so, it's not surprising that it's not been found yet because that area is pretty environmentally hostile. And then there's another commentary that says it landed in Armenia. But check out verse 2 where it says they traveled from the east to the plains of Shinar. And as we all know, that's in Iraq, south of Baghdad, which is pretty much due south of Mount Ararat. So what's east of Shinar is Iran. So maybe the ark is in the Iranian mountains. 
and I'm not sure if that's considered the same mountain range, but it looks like it. Or maybe after Noah died, they meandered around the Caspian Sea into Iran, being fruitful and multiplying, before they moved eastward. And it seems like there was a lot of people by this point, so it took a long time. But I have two competing theories. One, the ark was pitched inside and out, probably to preserve it, and God's just keeping it hid for now. And wherever it is, he'll let it be found closer to the last days as a testimony. Or, Noah and his rapidly expanding family cannibalized it for building materials in the early days after the flood, for shelters and barns and wagons and stuff. And there might not be very much of it left to be found. I'm thinking door number one is the way to go, but who knows. Anyway, verse 3, this big bunch of people decided to make this high-quality brick, and slime had they for mortar. And the word translated slime is actually something called bitumen, which is a naturally occurring petroleum product like asphalt. In the Greek, it's asphaltos, and they've been building with it forever over there. Verse 4, and they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And everybody wants to portray these people as trying to build a brick tower all the way up to God's throne room. But these people weren't stupid. They knew that wasn't really going to happen. Besides, there's three heavens, and the first one is where the birds fly. So a tower that reaches unto heaven just means it was going to be really tall. But also, the word unto is different from the word to. A tower to heaven is tall. A tower unto heaven implies worship. So probably at the top was a temple of some kind is what was really going on. Now, some people think they were just trying to protect themselves against another flood, but if so, it would have made more sense to build it on a mountain and not a plain. But verse 4 explains it for us, though. Two things. Number one, to make us a name. In other words, a great name out of pride and glory. To erect a monument to themselves that had last forever. And two, to prevent their dispersion, where it says, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Both of these things God hates. And he's already told y'all twice to spread out and fill the earth. They're trying to build a big one-world government, is what it sounds like, with its own pagan religion and everything. Does that sound familiar? Like the Jews say, pattern is prophecy. But God's like, no, I already got plans for that one-world thing at the end of the Bible. So y'all jump in the gun. If y'all don't want to separate, I'm going to separate you. So he changed the one language, probably some kind of Hebrew, into a bunch of languages. And probably like within the family group, so they'd have to go off and form nations, which is what he wanted them to do in the first place, which was clever. And verse 8 says, and they left off to build the city. So I guess they never went through with the tower thing. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, which means confusion. Then in verse 10, we get the generations of Shem. And I'm not going to read all of them, but the thing to notice is his firstborn, Arphaxad, lived to be 437, which is not even half of most of them pre-flood dudes. So immediately, we have a precipitous drop in lifespans. And they keep dropping till by the time we get to Nahor, in verse 25, he only makes it to 148. Which says to me, the environmental conditions after the flood were such that they somehow adversely affected our health. Maybe it had to do with ultraviolet radiation. Maybe our genetics had something to do with it. Maybe the speed of light. But something. Y'all can look that up later on your own. So, chapter 12, this is where God calls Abraham out of the Chaldees to be the first Jew. God tells him to pack up and leave your hometown and your dad's place and go to this land that I'm going to show you later. Then we have what they call the seven I wills of Genesis 12. God tells him, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, 
and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And he doesn't say, I will, in front of each one of those, but you get the picture. They're promises to what will be Israel one day. And that contract is still in force. And the way this is written, it implies that he didn't really do what God said, not right away. He just kind of moved upriver from Ur to Haran and lived there till he was 75. Maybe he was disobedient, or maybe that's what God said to do. Or maybe God gave him part of the message first and another part way later. He does that sometimes. But either way, Abe leaves Haran and takes his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all their stuff and a bunch of servants apparently and headed down to the land of Canaan, which is where Israel is now, which is where the Lord said he was going to give to his descendants. And there was a famine, so they go into Egypt to find food, which sounds familiar. And Sarai is apparently a hottie. And Abe is worried the Egyptians will kill him and take her. So he tells her to tell them she's his sister, which is kind of true. She's his half-sister. And that way, they won't kill me. They'll still take you. Nothing we can do about that. But at least I'll be okay. And they'll probably pay me pretty well for you too. So there's that. And that's exactly what happens. But this is not how God wanted things. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Does that sound familiar? Y'all got somebody in Egypt that God wants out, so he sends plagues. But we'll get to that. In verse 18, so Pharaoh calls Abe and is like, you're killing me, Smalls. Why you ain't tell me she was your wife? And I don't know how he knew. I guess she told him. He's like, see all these frogs and flies and boils on my face? That's your God doing that. Because you wasn't straight with me, and I'm the one taking heat for it. How he got clued in on all that, I don't know. But he couldn't get rid of the Abe family fast enough. And I don't know if all these plagues are the same ones as the ones in Exodus, but it would make sense. So chapter 13, they go back to Bethel where they were camped already, and they had set up an altar earlier, and Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Probably sacrifice and worship and thanksgiving and stuff. But that's where we stopped reading. So we have everyone speaking the same language. Now that seems like it would be a good thing. But when we look at 11.6, we see that nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined. And in the complete Jewish Bible, at this rate, nothing they set out to accomplish will be impossible for them. And it's just another strong indication that words matter and agreement is power. There's something in that. Anyway, in a day, they were reduced to babbling and had no reason to stick together. So I just want to make an observation. God told Abram, among other things, that he had a good plan for him. But then the famine came. Abram gets kicked out of Egypt for lying. And there's no mention that the famine is over. So Abram goes back to where he first called on the Lord. He repented. He turned his back on Egypt and he goes back to his first altar to call on God. And in the New Testament, we read Matthew 5, 1 through 26. And when we left off, Jesus was getting famous and a giant crowd was hanging around him. So he leads him up onto a mountain and preaches a seriously radical sermon. Brand new ideas nobody had ever heard before. And I'm tempted to read the whole thing, but I did that yesterday. And he lists a bunch of people who are blessed. And that may be better translated happy. So like verse 1, he's saying, happy are the poor in spirit. And no, we're not. People who are poor and weak and lacking in their spiritual lives are constantly struggling through life. And this is a total contradiction, which brings me to what I think is arguably the most amazing thing about God, which is his contradictory nature, at least from our perspective. Go with me for a minute. 
Scoffers love to say the Bible is full of contradictions. And it's not. There's not any, not the way they mean it. Except it is, though. If you view it from a carnal temporal perspective, everything about God is a contradiction. He says stuff like, love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Or like in verse 11 here, happy are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And no, that's wrong. We hate all of those things. Unless and until you connect up with God and start to see things from his point of view. Love your enemies because God does. And he wants them to come to him in spite of how rotten they are. Just like he wants you to come to him in spite of how rotten you are. And that's barely the beginning. So I say if contradictions are a hang-up for you, you really ought to get over that pretty soon because it only gets worse from here. And this contradictory nature is highlighted pretty well in this Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus knows this is radical, so he gives you the answer after each one. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then he calls his people the light of the world, meaning to shine his light. And he calls them the salt of the earth, meaning we should make things better, like salt does with food. And we should be a preservative in the world, and every now and then an irritant. And then he says, even though I'm here to do this new thing, I've only fulfilled the law. I'm the guy the law has pointed to for the last bazillion years. The law is still in effect. If it weren't, I wouldn't be who I am. So till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled, which it ain't yet, but soon, hopefully. And he explains that's why we need him, because of the law. Because except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you think you can follow the law and get to heaven, you can't. Even if you've never killed anybody, just being angry at somebody unjustly is the same as murder far as I'm concerned. So y'all all out. And that's why I'm here. And verse 22 is one that trips everybody up, where it says, Whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. And Raka is basically calling someone worthless, saying they have no value. Remember in Genesis 3 when they ate the apple, trying to be like gods? And the only thing it did for them was give them the ability to make value judgments, which it turns out was the main characteristic of what a god does. Remember we talked about all that? Well, right here, Raka is being judgmental about someone's worth, and that'll get you sent to hell faster than anything. So, if you got a problem with anybody, fix it. If you can't fix it, at least don't make it worse. Each life matters to us because Jesus paid for each life. And we don't want to waste a drop of that blood by running someone off that may accept him. And I want to get into forgiveness because it's huge. We must do it. And when we do, we experience the liberty of the Spirit and all the healing that entails. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. It's a decision a decision to obey God. It's a decision to love God more than whatever it is that's making you mad, hurting your feelings, whatever the case may be. I think this opens the door to all the happiness found in unlikely places covered in the Sermon on the Mount. And I have a testimony along those lines in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This verse told me what to do and provided the words I didn't have at the time. Many years ago, I had a falling out with one of my brothers, and I didn't speak to him for a couple of years. And like Abram, I went back to the last place I had God to. I started reading my Bible again, still not talking to my brother or thinking about it anymore. 
But I came across this verse, and it was clear, but I hesitated. And then fear, like the holy reverential type, the fear that God might not speak again if I don't do this, and I really didn't know how. And it's like, okay, but um, I don't know what to say. It's been years, but I had to do it. So I just did it. I prayed hardly a prayer at all, picked up the phone, called my brother, and started right into it with the words that I'd been given. I called my brother, and I said, I'm reading in my Bible, and I came across this verse. And I read 523 and 24 to him, and I said, I'm calling to be reconciled. I was so empty at the time, which was a good thing because God made it right that day. And my brother and I were thoroughly reconciled because God is good and he loves forgiveness. Far out. (laughs) So in Psalms, we read Psalm 5, 1 through 12, and that's to the chief musician upon Naaloth, a Psalm of David. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. And that means this is a prayer. Basically, it's a prayer for the destruction of the wicked, but mercy for him. And I think what he's getting at is the difference between him and the wicked is he genuinely wants to walk with God. It's difficult to do, and he needs mercy, but he's trying. Not like them wicked people who don't try at all. Yeah, one thing about David, he had a lot of enemies. He knows how to pray in the world, how to do battle in the spirit. And then in Proverbs, we read Proverbs 1, 24-28. And I'm not going to read it, but this is still wisdom standing in the street and calling for us to not be stupid. And she basically says, if I call you to wisdom and you reject me, I'll leave you to your foolishness. And that's an interesting concept, the idea of wisdom leaving you. But have you ever known anybody like that, that makes the same mistakes over and over again and never learns, keeps getting their hand burnt on the stove? Well, wisdom has left them. You can only reject wisdom for so long. And that's the same thing with God's patience. It's meant to lead us to repentance. And if we won't, then it's over. But that's the end of our review of yesterday's study. Thanks for your help, babe. Our reading in the Old Testament for January 6th is Genesis 13:5 through 15:21. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked, and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. 
Then Abram removed his tent, and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Chapter 14 And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel king of Shinar, Arioch king of Eleazar, Chedor Laomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of nations, that these made war with Bera king of Sodom, and with Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, and Shemeber king of Zeboaim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto Elparan, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazaz on Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboaim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Chedorlaomer the king of Elam, and with Tidal king of nations, and Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Escol, and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Chapter 15 After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. 
And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Our reading in the New Testament for January 6th is Matthew 5, 27-48. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Our reading in Psalms for January 6th is Psalm 6, 1-10. through To the chief musician on Naganoth, upon Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. And our reading in Proverbs for January 6th is Proverbs 1, 29-33. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. And that's got it for the sixth. Okay, y'all, let's do our 30-second meditation. Today's prayer is on Matthew 7.15, which says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So hit the 30-second back button on your podcast player a few times and meditate with me for a little while on not becoming one of them, because prayer is the heavy artillery in the armor of God. So if you're ready, let's go. Father God, we strive to be holy even as you are holy. Even so, your command to be wise as serpents yet harmless as doves takes much discipline. Our attempts at harmlessness can sometimes manifest as gullibility and naivete, which makes us targets for false Christians who would abuse that trust to take advantage. Likewise, in trying to be wise as serpents, we can inadvertently be turned into the wolves in sheep's clothing that we abhor. Please, Father, protect us from those that would harm us and protect us from ourselves that we do no harm. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, that's all the Bible yallin' I got for you tonight. Thank you, Father, for letting us study your word and for the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Please bless and keep everybody listening and let this podcast be helpful to them in some kind of way. Amen. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, Google CastBox, and Facebook. If you like what we're doing and you want to support it, what I really need you to do is to pray for me and Bible Y'all Squaw and all our friends and family. Because when the devil can't get to us, he goes after them. If you got anything you want us to pray for you about, email me at BibleYallPodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, just go on out and try to make the world a better place. And if you ain't going to make things any better, just don't make them any worse. Thanks, everybody, and God bless y'all. Hey. Bible, y'all. Oh, yeah. One. And just an observation. God told Abram, what? Was that okay? Oh, I thought you said something. <laughs> I just, I, oh, bleh.